It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The incumbent president is incapable of telling us the truth. This is the most important election in the history of our country. You're listening to our special US election series, Campaign Confidential. The last presidential election in 2016 saw huge debates about issues like immigration. There is almost no issue that separates the two of you more than the issue of immigration. Actually, there are a lot of issues. Power plays over the future direction of the Supreme Court. You know, I think when we talk about the Supreme Court, it really raises the central issue in this election. The Supreme Court, it's what it's all about. And ethics. Remember Hillary Clinton's emails? After the FBI and Department of Justice whitewashed Hillary Clinton's email crimes, they certainly cannot be trusted to quickly or impartially investigate Hillary Clinton's new crimes. Which but if Americans worried about the conduct of the 2016 election, it was mostly via the rearview mirror as detailed evidence emerged of Russian interference. But in 2020, it's the election mechanics that are front and center of political debate. How will 150 million or so Americans safely vote in a pandemic? What counts as fair access to voting? Will all votes even be counted? And why isn't Congress paying for the new voting realities? I'm Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Global Translations newsletter, and you're listening to Campaign Confidential. This time, it's not just Russia working to undermine the US election results. It's a bunch of foreign governments and domestic operatives too. When you throw in an economic recession and civil unrest in American cities, you've got what a lot of experts are calling a perfect storm. It really is almost the perfect storm for a bad actor. It all sounds like a potential perfect storm. A perfect storm of bad. I sort of hate the cliche, but it feels like this is a perfect storm that is brewing for this election. Today, we'll talk through the top concerns to keep in mind when following America's election. To help us out, we brought in Garrett Graff, former editor of Politico magazine, who recently outlined in the magazine eight big reasons why Election Day in 2020 could be a disaster. You can find the article online. Now, Garrett thinks this is a perfect storm, not in the sense of it being a surprise collision of events that catches its victims off guard, but in the extraordinary pileup of the complications election officials face this year. There's no federal election authority to sort it all out. It's up to 3,100 counties and 50 states to reinvent the election wheel. They're starting from different positions, they're running their elections in different ways, and they're doing it with different resources. The more you look into this election, the messier it seems, including to experts. The COVID pandemic is going to change almost every aspect of the way that people vote. It's going to change how people vote, where they vote, and who watches over their votes. 
um, you know, one of the really big challenges that uh, election officials are going to face this fall is the simple fact that most poll workers are over the age of 60. Um, the population uniquely vulnerable to COVID. And so, you know, there are going to be tens of thousands of poll workers who need to be replaced coming into this fall. There's been a lot of conversation already about the post office and the impact on mail-in balloting. But part of this is also going to end up being that a lot of people are just not going to be where they usually are to vote. And so we're talking students and others? Exactly. You know, people who have relocated to family or second homes for the duration of the pandemic, college students who were expecting to be on campus this fall, uh, who are taking classes virtually instead. And that all of that is going to shift, you know, every single week of the fall itself. You know, colleges that are open today may not be open on October 15th and may not be open on November 4th. And so, you know, you have enormous complexity coming into the system this year. You know, there are 20 million college students in the United States and the college student population alone in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania represent far more than President Trump's margin of victory in 2016. And so, you know, if you even just have the absentee ballots for college students in those three states going to the wrong address, um, you know, that could have a deciding impact on turnout for November. And is this just a problem for the Democrats? We often hear about uh, minority voters experiencing problems accessing voting booths. You've just described the student problem. And those demographics tend to vote for the Democrats more than for the Republicans. But then with mail-in voting, it's not clear um, that there's any party political advantage one way or the other. There is no clear evidence that this will benefit one side or another. Um, Because, you know, if you sort of simplify this all to stereotypes... You know, if you think college students skew more Democratic, older people skew more Republican, older voters are going to be equally affected by this and equally less interested in uh, trying to vote in person this fall. And in fact, many of the regular polling places across the country are moving and shifting, in part because nursing homes actually often host polling places um, and they are giving that up this year for the safety and security of their residents, but that's going to make it harder for those populations to vote. So I think the the challenge across the board with this election is just the complexity and uncertainty is going to have all sorts of disparate impacts that we can't understand or model. And that's important because In a democracy, we often misunderstand what the purpose of an election is. You know, we think uh, an election is about counting the votes and declaring a winner. But when you talk to election officials, 
What they actually say is that the most important part of their job is convincing the loser that they lost, uh, convincing the person who doesn't win that the election was fair enough, secure enough, and equitable enough that their loss was real, um, that they were actually not the preference of the majority of the people. And so in this election, part of the challenge is going to be if you have someone, for instance, like the president of the United States, who seems inclined to denigrate the legitimacy of a loss, he is going to have more real evidence to draw from in this year than perhaps in any election in U.S. history. Global experience in 2020 shows that the single most useful way to make an election safe during the pandemic is to give people more options in how they vote. But that's a huge source of contention in the US, particularly when it means voting by mail. First, it's going to cost more money than Democrats and Republicans can agree to compromise to spend. Then there's the ballots themselves. In New York, it took six weeks to declare the results of June primary elections, which was a dispute because many of the ballots did not have a date of return postmarked on them. In total, more than 500,000 mail ballots were rejected during primaries across 23 states this year. Not only for arriving late, but they're also typically poorly designed, so many don't fill them out correctly. There is likely to be confusion and slowness around absentee ballots going out and coming back. Some states differ as to whether absentee ballots have to be postmarked by Election Day or received by Election Day. And so, you know, in states that are received by Election Day states, you can have voters who have done everything right and then their ballot gets slowed down by the post office uh, and through no fault of their own isn't counted. The second sort of major risk is when you talk about all of these potential impacts on turnout, that means that the final results could differ much more than normal from whatever the polls that we had going into election day. So that, you know, you might be... And whatever we've counted on election night as well. Well, yes. And and that's, that to me is actually a separate major third risk, which is we are so used to states being able to declare on election night who the victor is that we are unprepared for a November where some states may not declare for a week or two. And that that actually doesn't mean anything is wrong. A lot of states actually prohibit the counting of absentee ballots before Election Day or even before polls close. And on states that have ballots that are just have to be postmarked by Election Day, you know, it's entirely possible that on you know, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of election week, you still have ballots trickling in. And so... Have we seen any shifts at the state level, and I'm assuming it's the state level, but correct me if it's at the local level as well, where I noticed that a lot of the public debate is around potential problems with the postal service. And then, you know, listening to that debate, I started to wonder why aren't state legislatures and local authorities doing more to mitigate the risk by changing their own deadlines and so on? Like, 
where do you think the kind of balance of risks is there? Part of the challenge is there's just not a lot of time to plan. You know, there are five states in the country that do entirely mail-in voting. Vote by mail for all elections was an established process in five states before the pandemic. Washington, Oregon, Utah, Colorado, and Hawaii. In-person voting is also... It took them decades to put those plans into place, to perfect them, to work it out. And even some of those states are changing the way that they are structuring this year. Washington state just announced that they are going to be sending ballots by first-class mail in order to help speed them um, after a certain date to help ensure that they get counted in time. But some of this is also, you know, you're just injecting complexity uh, throughout the system that states that are not full mail-in ballots still have to conduct a physical in-person vote on election day in addition to building an entire infrastructure to support millions of absentee ballots that might not have existed before. That's expensive. That's time-consuming. Um, you know, you, you may be in a situation where you're suddenly looking to recruit poll workers, not just for a couple of hours on Tuesday, but, you know, to staff up, you know, for an entire week or two. So it's almost any one of these things would be sort of addressable under normal circumstances um, or would be addressable with time. Uh, the challenges this year, none of this is happening in a vacuum, and we're just rapidly running out of time. In the last week of August, foreign election interference hit the headlines again, thanks to a break with tradition in how intelligence services plan to report election threats to Congress. The director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, sent letters to Congress Friday, canceling most in-person briefings on foreign election interference, saying his office would instead provide written reports. Radcliffe wrote in part, I believe this approach helps ensure that information ODNI provides the Congress on election security, foreign malign influence, and election interference is not misunderstood nor politicized. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi... That infuriated Democrats given the range of threats facing the election, and it once again focused attention on potential foreign interference, as was proven to have been conducted by Russia in 2016. In 2016, what was so surprising was the fact that Russia attacked the U.S. election in the first place. Now, other foreign adversaries have seen the enormous success that came out of that Russian operation and have seen that Russia has paid no meaningful price for that election attack. And we have also seen domestic actors uh, begin to adopt some of the practices that we saw Russia use in 2016, which is enormously hard for government agencies and the social media platforms to address when it's a domestic actor who is protected by First Amendment free speech rights in a way that internet trolls in Russia are not. On Monday, I caught up with Lisa Kaplan, She's the founder and CEO of Aletheia Group, a company that identifies and mitigates misinformation and election interference. Let's call it a new growth industry. 
We're in the middle of a global pandemic and this election is just going to be totally unprecedented in the sense that a lot of modifications may need to be made so that people can vote safely without risking their health or the health of their family. And so when you take that all together, it really is almost the perfect storm for a bad actor. Practically every expert I interview about the election reaches for the perfect storm analogy. So if all the experts can see the storm rolling in, what can we, whether that's voter or journalist, do about it? When we think about disinformation, we actually think about disinformation as a long-term game. It takes time to build an audience and to build influence with individuals. So the 2020 plan for state actors, they've probably been working on that for at least the last four years since 2016 happened and they face no punishment. And so what we're really looking for is not just disinformation as it relates to the immediate, but how it could potentially impact the future. So we look for ways to understand these information flows and how bad actors are spreading these false narratives to be able to identify the infrastructure that they're using and then be able to action depending on what's going on. So when we think about the 2020 elections, the first thing that I would expect is disinformation around when, where, how to vote. Social media platforms have already drawn a red line here. That type of content will likely come down, even if it's misinformation, which is when somebody puts something on there that's just inaccurate. It's not malicious. It's not part of a broader influence campaign, but we're likely to see some action. So taking a step back, what a bad bad actor would likely do is influence two decision points because the whole purpose of a disinformation campaign is to get you to change your behavior. The first decision would be whether or not to vote. So are you going to be able to vote by mail? Are you going to be able to vote in person? Are you going to be able to vote in person and early? All of these things are the different um, pieces of information that could potentially be manipulated to make it harder for you as a voter to exercise your right to vote. The second piece of disinformation will likely be targeting your perceptions of the different candidates along different issues that are important to you. So we know from 2016 that what bad actors are able to do is they're able to micro-target you, not just with advertising, but by building websites or building content that's similar to the things that you like to see and build engagement with you so that you start relying on them to tell you information and slowly slip in false narratives. Um, After the election, and this is the part that's keeping me up at night, is that period after the election. I think one of the things that we're starting to realize is it's going to take time to count some of these ballots that are going to be coming in by mail, and we may not know who won the election on election night, and that is okay. Democracy takes time. It also creates a space for a bad actor to come in and try to undermine our faith in the democratic process. And that's the new piece that we really need to work together to be on the lookout for as a democracy. And part of that is because we know, for example, it's been widely documented that the Russian goal is to undermine the faith that we have in our institutions. What better time for them to do so? Lisa wasn't the only person I've spoken with lately who has warned that the election results will take some time. A few weeks back, I spoke with Ellen Weintraub, who serves as a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission appointed by the Democrats. 
The FEC, as it's known, is an independent regulatory agency, but despite its general name, it doesn't deal with all election issues. It's specifically focused on enforcing campaign finance law in federal elections. This pandemic is really uh, teaching us a lot of lessons about patience and waiting. And they're not always welcome lessons, but uh, I think everyone really needs to just prepare for this mentally, that it may not be the kind of election night that we're used to, where we're waiting up late and the election results come in. And then as the polls close, the, the newscasters start announcing things online, uh, uh, on, on television and online. And I, I think that if people prepare for that, you know, we can, we can cope with that. Americans have done this before. There have been many instances in our history where people haven't known the election results on election night. And it's worth waiting to find out the results accurately. We want to make sure that every vote counts. So the big question is, are Americans prepared to be patient and prepare for this election? Half told Pew Research they expect problems when attempting to vote. Three out of four expect foreign interference. And while you might not get Americans agreeing on the nature of the election problems they're facing, it's clear that patience is running thin across the country. There's impatience with a pandemic that hasn't been controlled. There's impatience to get back to normal life. And there's impatience with centuries of accumulated inequalities. While millions were forced to be patient in 2020 to cope with coronavirus, just as many couldn't resist reopening and letting their guard down too soon. And they've paid a heavy price. In other words, we are looking at a perfect storm. It's not just the candidates on the ballot paper in November, it's the American democratic system itself. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks again to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Ryan Heath from Washington, D.C., saying bye for now.